This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. So tonight, I'm pleased to introduce Elaine Shannon to Politics and Prose. Shannon is an acclaimed veteran correspondent for Time and Newsweek. She's the author of No Heroes, The Spy Next Door, and Desperados, which served as the basis for the NBC miniseries Drug Wars. In Hunting LaRue, Shannon chronicles the activities of Paul LaRue, a cybersecurity entrepreneur turned criminal mastermind who utilized digital age technology to carry out a global network of crimes. Although LaRue's methods were genius, he was eventually noticed and caught by the 960 Group, an element of the DEA's Special Operations Division, who used their own expertise and unorthodox methods to bring him down. Don Winslow, author of The Border, writes, meticulously documented and with exclusive access to almost all the key players on both sides of the law. This is the definitive work on the rise and fall of malign actor Paul LaRue, as well as a jaw-dropping crime saga. Shannon takes the reader inside the story so that you're in the room, on the hunt, and dead center in the middle of the action with elite DEA agents operating without borders in a tense and dangerous global manhunt to take down a 21st century criminal kingpin. It's a stunning work by a master investigative journalist. Tonight, Shannon will be joined in conversation with Karen Tumulty, columnist for The Washington Post. And now please join me in welcoming Ch- Elaine Shannon and Karen Tumulty. Thank you. Thank you. I'm also delighted that C-SPAN is here since I'm a bit of a C-SPAN super fan. Um, but anyway, um, so Elaine, how did you come to write this book? How did you come across Paul LaRue and and this entire world that you reveal in this book that is just so fascinating and every page is is so cinematic and action-packed? Oh, well, thank you, Karen. It's wonderful to be here with you. We worked together for many years at Time and I see some Time colleagues here and some Newsweek colleagues here and I'm welcome to you all. I miss you. Uh, I was... I knew that there was a lot of dirty money sloshing around underneath the Earth's crust. I'd been in Afghanistan, and I could see how heroin was financing both sides of the war. I'd been in other parts of the world. Uh, Hezbollah has been uh, raking in cocaine money. Uh, So have the Islamists in Africa. Every place where you have a road or a port and it's controlled by militants, they gotta be paid. If you're, if you're a smuggler and you wanna smuggle something through a port that's controlled by militants, you gotta pay them. Uh, a lot of those militants are highly political. So I was very interested in doing a, a book about how it was no longer just about horses and cars and girls and clubs. It's now about the politics of a lot of the world. Uh, I was working on this when somebody told me Uh, about the strangest and most interesting cartel leader that he'd ever uh, met. And this guy had been investigating him and spending time with this guy. His name was Paul LaRue. He was uh, started out as an entrepreneur in cybersecurity. He was a very gifted programmer, self-taught. But when he got to be 30, he decided to go bad, really bad. 
he set up shop in Somalia. He set up, set up shop in Manila. He started selling uh, black market pharmaceuticals online. And he married uh, America's two great loves, take popping pills and online shopping. <laughs> this was genius. Uh, seriously, I mean, it's one thing when you have to sneak around in the dark to go get something that you're not supposed to have. But when you can just go online at midnight when everybody else is asleep and you can just order it and it shows up three days later in a FedEx package, that changes the game. That's what he was doing and he apparently raked in about three or four hundred million dollars doing this in just about four years, which is pretty good for an internet startup. Uh, he then moved into gold, he moved into timber, he moved into arms, he diversified. He moved into uh, dealing with Iran. Uh, Iran wanted him to create, help uh, its engineers create precision-guided missiles that would hit uh, Israel better or any of the other states that Iran fights with, small ones, so they could be carried around. And he was all uh, enthusiasm about that. As a programmer, he thought he could build uh, chips, cheap, like $30 chips, to make these precision-guided so-called smart rockets and missiles to give to Iran's proxies. He also started dealing with North Korea. North Korea makes a lot of meth. Um, needs hard currency. Meth is a, just a chemical. You can, it makes that. And he was starting to traffic that uh, in league with the Chinese triads, which are organized crime groups based in that area. Uh, the more I heard about this guy through my sources, the more I thought, well, wow, this is a pretty good book. At first it was going to be a chapter in a book. And then I had a conversation with Michael Mann, an old friend who is a filmmaker. And he said, no, you should just do this. This is enough. And I said, no, but I got some other stories. You can do those later. This guy, he's the new new. He is the Silicon Valley model of organized crime. This is what people need to understand. Everything is changing. Everything is getting faster. Everything is getting more efficient and more dangerous for that reason. So I worked and worked and worked got all the detail I could, got to every agent that I could who had been in contact with LaRue or investigated parts of his business, which range all over the place, and here we are. Well, but it's also as fascinating as LaRue is in the book. I think uh, you, you paint a picture of this special team within the DEA. I mean, these guys are are cowboys. They are, you know, they are an international intelligence operation. Could you talk a little bit about them and how you, how you came to find out this operation within the DEA? Yes, very few people have heard about it, but they call themselves the 960 group. The reason they do that is because in about 2006, Henry Hyde, who was then a very powerful Congress, member of Congress, uh, got very, very frustrated because uh, the Taliban was being financed with heroin money, but that heroin was not coming here to the United States. It was going to Europe, it was going to Russia, but it was killing our people. It was killing our allies. It was killing innocent civilians because we had basically a self-funding war in Afghanistan, and we still have that because there's more opium than ever. Uh, Henry Hyde pushed through 
a, an amendment that very few people noticed at the time, uh, which was, became codified as 960. Uh, and what it said was that if you use money made with drugs any, anywhere in the world, and you take that money and you give it to a terrorist group recognized by the U.S. government as terrorist, uh, then you're in violation of U.S. law. It was a very long-arm statute. Uh, DEA got it, uh, the, the jurisdiction, and to make sure that it didn't get overused and then have a bad court decision, uh, it, the use of it was confined to this small group that was created within the Special Operations Division of the DEA. Only this group could use it, and it had to have a lot of levels of review to make sure they went after truly bad ca characters. Yeah, this is like SEAL Team 6 at the DEA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't call them cowboys, but they, they put some very special uh, criminal investigators who grown-ups, because you, you got to be careful with these long-arm cases in foreign countries, or you will make a mess, and then you'll have a scandal, and maybe you won't have DEA anymore. They all know that. Uh, one, one scandal, and they're lost. So they put a very prudent man named Lou Million in charge of it. He had brought in uh, a guy named Munzer el Kassar, who was an arms dealer and heroin dealer. He's from Syria. He financed the Achille Lauro uh, terrorist event back in the uh, 80s. And then he brought in Victor Boot, uh, who was the, one of the world's greatest uh, arms dealers. They were off to the races. Since then, the 960 group has brought in many uh, arms and drug traffickers. Uh, it, so it's a kind of a hybrid group. They focus on people who are of, of great threat to international security. And the other thing is that LaRue does not operate on his own. I mean, he has a gigantic team of enforcers. He's got uh, his own Air Force, practically. Um, could you talk a little bit about the, the network, the people who went to work for LaRue? These were people who were willing to do anything for him, including murder. That's right. LaRue um, wanted to be Jeff Bezos, but on the complete dark side. He wanted to build <clears throat> the everything store for uh, other criminals, militants, anybody who would pay him. That is why he started building a base in Somalia. Uh, it was out in the middle of nowhere, literally, it's desert. And uh, it was between uh, Al-Shabaab and the Mogadishu warlords, but he paid the people in the middle and uh, built one base near an airport. And then he was pushing out to the coast where he was gonna build a port, a seaport, a uh, landing strip for cargo planes. He was going to bring in all kinds of arms uh, that they were going to be transshipped to whoever uh, he decided to sell them to. Barracks, livestock, farms, a desalinization system. It was going to be a completely self-contained warlord world. He paid the Somali pirates to leave the coast alone so that he could bring in equipment and arms. He, uh, he bribed everybody that he needed he thought he needed to bribe. His fatal mistake there was he hired a really good builder from Europe, a guy who'd been in the Navy and before that was an Olympic swimmer. And he was uh, moving right along and then 
the problem with LaRue was that whenever he thought that one of his employees was stealing, he would threaten to kill him. He did this rather regularly. They had a pact so that, uh, okay, if he tells you to kill me, uh, then we fake my death, we spread some red stuff around, and I take off. <clears throat> uh, that worked pretty well for a while, but then the, LaRue killed his first head hit man, a guy named Dave Smith, and he appointed a guy from Kentucky named Joe Hunter to be the head hitman. Well, Joe Hunter really enjoyed killing, and he didn't obey the pact. And so when um, the builder found out that he that uh, Hunter was hunting him and going to kill him, he took off, naturally. I mean, he's a smart guy. His, we call him Jack in the book. That's not his real name, but that's good enough because that's what LaRue called him. He took off, uh, he went to the Middle East, and he was so angry because he'd been very loyal to LaRue and he hadn't stolen, and he had the papers to prove it. He went online and he sent a tip to the CIA tip line and said, if you want to talk about this guy LaRue, I'm glad to do it. CIA didn't do anything. They retained the, the uh, tip and, in the computer and nothing happened. But about a year later, um, there were two DEA agents who were in the Africa group of the 960 group. Uh, they were talking to an Africa specialist who had worked for DIA and who cared a lot about Somalia because he cared a lot about Al-Qaeda's presence in Africa. And uh, he had read a UN report that talked about some strange guy named LaRue who was trying to build... Of a farm where he was going to grow coca and opium, uh, which probably wouldn't work, but if it did, it would bypass the Colombians and it would bypass the Mexicans. So that was pretty interesting. So this this guy, Rudy Atala, uh, he was an Air Force pilot as well as DIA, he told these two DEA agents that there's this guy and he's doing something that nobody's ever seen before. Well, naturally, uh, they were interested and they were adventurous and they were clever. So they looked into him. They got a colleague to check, run the checks in all of the databases. And the colleague, uh, who was in Pretoria, South Africa, uh, got the CIA to run its database. And up pops this um, the Jack. So they go find Jack. They called him and they said, um, we're from the U.S. government. Would you talk to us? And amazingly, he said, yeah, I would. Uh, this was a great risk to his life, but he figured LaRue was going to kill him, and maybe his family too, if he didn't do something. So Jack went to work for the DEA. Uh, I got to know him through uh, the 960 group. He stayed undercover within LaRue's organization. He went back to work for him and became uh, a trusted person close to LaRue and helped lure LaRue to Monrovia on the pretext that he was going to meet a Colombian cartel leader and cement a grand global alliance, cocaine for meth, North Korean meth. It was going to be great. It was going to he was going to take over the world, and suddenly he found himself under arrest. So how did you research this? I mean, how much of this... <laughs> Yeah, how'd you get these guys to talk to you? How much of this was court documents? How much of it is what? 
Uh, there are court documents, but mostly uh, I just talked to people. I found out who was, who was in the airplane with LaRue. Who was, when he, how did that work? How did, uh, he flipped on the plane because he was 38 years old. He likes ladies a lot, and he said, Victor Boot went to jail for 25 years. I'm not doing that. By the way, I'm there are sex up. acts described in this book that I didn't even know were possible. <laughs> but um, I've been asked not to describe them. <laughs> but uh, look up Phuket, which is the, where the safe house for the hit team was. There was a reason it was there. It's because it's appealing to... He, he, he built a hit team of young men who had been snipers, mostly, in various commando units. Most people come back from wars and they want to get a job and build a new life. But there are a few people who just love the adventure and they wanted to work in the security world, uh, meaning enforcer world, and do some really bad stuff. And they needed a safe house. Well, why not put it in the sex tourism capital of the world? It sounds... It was a, a, a recruiting point. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just talked to everybody who'd been in Phuket. I talked to everybody who'd been in the planes. I talked to everybody I could get my hands on. The, why did DEA agents talk to me? My first book, Desperados, was about the murder of a DEA agent. It was the first book that told the truth about the American relationship with uh, Mexico and the uh, corruption in Mexico. Many agents felt that they had been forced to lie. Agents and other law enforcement people do not like to lie. It, it upsets them. They're very black and white people. They don't see, they don't want to live in the gray world that maybe some other people do. And so this, when an agent was killed or disappeared, we didn't, they didn't know what happened to him. I wrote so many stories that exposed corruption in Mexico and basically forced the Mexican government to find the body. And they found it in a place where it had not been buried. And they could tell that from soil samples. The Mexican government did not understand what forensic labs do. But they got the body back. They found out who was involved. That crime is still, I am sure, officially un unsolved because... Some of the officials involved were not brought to justice, but it told the truth, and the truth mattered to a lot of agents. A lot of people joined DEA because they read about Kiki Camarena's death. So that goodwill uh, was remembered. And so for many years, I'd go anywhere, and, and I'd meet a DEA agent who'd read the book and wanted to talk about what the truth really is. I very much appreciate people who value the truth. So could you, could we go back just a bit? Could you describe Paul LaRue? I mean, where did he grow up? One, one thing that's interesting is, I mean, here's a guy whose fantasy his whole life has been to surround himself with piles of money. But you describe him as somebody who's kind of a schlubby looking guy who sit back and coach in a plane. So... Just tell us about him personally. He, he's the most interesting man because he is from nowhere. He is 
he was from uh, he was born in colonial Rhodesia, which is doesn't exist anymore. Uh, born in the little insular white community there, British uh, by heritage, but a, a white African. Uh, and if you want to read an interesting book, read the White Tribes of Africa about these little uh, colonies of people who grow up in isolation and they are sometimes very odd and, and life is very stressful because of colonization, oppressing a majority is, is, is a perverted kind of work. And then when uh, Zimbabwe became Zimbabwe in 1980, uh, a couple of years after that, he and his family, he was illegitimate, by the way, and he was adopted. He and his family moved to uh, South Africa, which was a little bit better, but not much, because South Africa was under sanction and great pressure to uh, be fair and to bring in democracy to, to the great majority there. He went to school in a somewhat privileged position relative to uh, the Africans and the coloreds, but they didn't have a lot of money. So he, he learned computer programming. When he was 18 years old, he went to London on his first job. Uh, he didn't really ever go back. He taught himself cybersecurity programming, some very arcane arts. He attracted the attention of somebody uh, who had, was also starting out in the, building a company in the cybersecurity field. His first boss was six months older than he was, but he'd been a hacker as a teenager, and together they were starting a ground-level, revolutionary kind of cybersecurity to protect laptops. Laptops were coming in, and people were leaving them in uh, subways. People were traveling to China or Iran or other places where... The laptop, the, in, the data in the laptop was getting stolen, so they had an idea for really strong security. Paul did that until about 2002 when the bent part of him, and I can't explain what bent him, but it was there. He started stealing from his colleagues. They figured it out. He was stealing code, selling it out the back door. They caught him. He wasn't particularly sorry. Uh, they threw him out. He disappears into probably Costa Rica, probably online gambling, but somebody gives him the idea, you know, you really ought to go into the pharmaceutical field, uh, online pharmaceuticals, not with prescriptions, but fake prescriptions. So he created, he went, moved to Manila, set up some call centers there and in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Now, this was brilliant because... Nobody's looking for organized crime in these places. Uh, they're looking in Colombia. They're looking elsewhere. But they're not looking uh, for a big operation, which Paul created, to sell high-volume prescriptions. He became the FedEx's biggest customer, is my understanding. <laughs> and what they did was they, they didn't ship drugs into the United States. They were here. They just created false prescriptions, which... If you, you wrote in online, you would uh, get it from a certain pharmacy that was in his network that he'd recruited, and then they'd fill it, or they'd have a doctor or a phony doctor fill it, and it all stayed here. So the business model was minimal movement across borders. That's how he made his first two, three, four hundred million dollars. 
In the meantime, though, he was branching out. He was buying safe houses. He was hiring enforcers. He was into gold, and he was moving big time into arms. Well, one more question before we go to questions from the audience. So where is he now? As I say, when he got on the airplane in, in uh, Manila, he fought like a tiger. He tried to bribe, I'm sorry, M Monrovia. He tried to bribe the Monrovian police. It was the Liberian National Security Agency police, which was run by a man named Fumba Sirleaf, who is the stepson of Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who had recently won a Nobel Prize for bringing peace to Liberia. And she knew that drug traffickers were crawling all over West Africa, and she didn't want any in Liberia. She was having a hard enough time standing up a government after 12 years of civil war without a bunch of traffickers bribing everybody. So when Paul shows up, she says, let's expel him. She signed the order. He was arrested by Fuma Sirleaf and his men and put on an airplane, DEA plane that was going to take him straight to Manhattan, where he was going to face an indictment on trafficking in North Korean meth and breaking Iran sanctions and some other things that he'd done. Well, the minute he got on the plane, after fighting and cursing and all the kind of stuff, he just stopped. He became CEO, Paul. His personality to totally changed, and he said, well played, gentlemen, but if you're looking for me, you're looking for something bigger. And they said, no, you're the prize. <laughs> we, no, you, I have bigger things. And then he said, no, you're, you're it. No, there's something bigger. And he said, they said, okay, what? And he said, nation states, gentlemen, nation states. And that is when he started to talk about his relationship with the Iranian um, defense establishment and how he was making arms for Iran. Uh, he also started to talk about North Korea. Well, they said, uh, boy, what do we do with all this? They hoped he would shut up, but he talked the whole way to New York. Nobody had slept for 72 hours, but they, and they couldn't make a deal. And the, but they said, okay, you want to talk? We, here's your Miranda rights. He talked and talked. He joined Team America. They've had some, a bunch of ideas for, well, how do, how do we get into the Iran rat line through him? And we know more about how that works. How do we get into the North Korean rat line so we figure out exactly who's getting the money and where it goes? These were a very appealing prospects. But then they found out about the murders. And how many, he'd killed, ordered killed, at least seven people. Uh, there were enforcers that worked for him who were walking around with what they call target packages, means orders to hit people. They had them in their pockets. They said, well, we got to go get those guys. Human life trumps everything. So from jail, from the federal lockup, he became part of Team America. He, uh, his employees had never seen him, most of them, so he could uh, email them or text them. And they would, the agents would watch him, and he ended up luring uh, several of his enforcers, five of them, and the North Korean hit team to various places where they could be arrested and brought to New York as well. And then they found out about two more enforcers that were in North Carolina. So they had to go get them. They were possibly the most dangerous. 
So anyway, um, we could open it up now to questions. If anybody, there's a couple of microphones right over there. And um, anybody has any questions about how this amazing book came to be? Well, uh, where's Paul now? He's in Queens. He's in a lockup. He's for, it's a lockup for federal prisoners who have not yet been sentenced. So he's not part of the general population. Um, he doesn't have, have a prisoner ID yet, so I can't go talk to him. He's, they're still waiting on appeals to run through for uh, the three hitmen who were tried last uh, April and found guilty. Uh, once that happens, eventually he will join the prison population, and he's hoping to get a, a reduced sentence. But uh, you have to think about uh, the, what is the judge going to do, thinking about all the things he has confessed to doing, and how how is that going to look? So he might he might not get life. He's looking at max life, but he could maybe get twenty years. Oh, here we we. You know, I may have asked you the same question when Desperados came out, but um, in in reporting all this, um, first of all, how many trips did you make overseas? And second of all, did you ever feel like in danger? I mean, for your life? You know, let me take the second part. I never, people who are, there are plenty of people in danger. In Afghanistan, you see where civilians are killed every single day. And when I was there, there were children dying because they had to sleep on the frozen ground, and the government didn't want to admit that there were any refugees who were cold, and so there were just people dying. Those are the people in danger. I, I'm a journalist. I'm, I can take care of myself. I was fortunate to live in U.S. bases. But... Uh, these are, st Americans need to know that there's a big world out there and there's a lot of money and a lot of bad people and they're financing these conflicts that we see now and it's not fantasy, it's real. Uh, the banking centers are in China and Dubai and some other places and, and we need to pay more attention and use our diplomacy and whatever other measures we can to shut down some of that money. So I don't think about myself very much. Did, did I travel a lot? Yeah, some. Uh, not as much as I wanted. But a lot of pe people are through here a lot. And there's a, there are wonderful inventions, uh, encrypted uh, texting. But let me tell you something about law enforcement. One of the nice things about it is that it's not classified. So I don't have any classified information. It has to be. Our rule of law worked. All, all, everything that I describe happened in a context of criminal investigations, indictments, arrests, people brought before judges and juries. In order for that to happen, it cannot be classified because you can't show classified information to a jury. Therefore, stealth was used, guile was used, deceit was used. There were no drones, no secret prisons. Nobody was shot and killed. Nobody was assassinated. 
people were arrested the old-fashioned way, and they were brought in front of a judge and then sometimes in front of a jury, and it worked the way it was supposed to. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a great thing. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, I was wondering what has happened in the meantime to his empire? Do you know, has a, has a, a successor stepped forward? Um, do you know anything about that? Well, Paul LaRue did not have a successor. He had no conciliary. He had no best friend. He's probably as good friends with the agents who spend time with him as anybody else. He was a real loner in that sense. And when he occasionally made a friend, he generally betrayed that friend, which is not a good business plan. That was his flaw. I am sure that there are other people out there that are doing something very much like this. And to check, last night I went on, online and I asked for tramadol or some other opioid and where I could buy it, and boy, it popped right up. It all said Canadian pharmacy. These are not Canadian pharmacies. These are someplace else. But you can go online tonight and buy drugs. Uh, they are bad for you. Don't do it. But you can. <laughs> and, and seriously, these, these are addictive substances. He's one of the architects of that. Um, Paul uh, is unique in his brain power. But there are other people who are not quite as smart, not quite as manipulative, not quite as ambitious, ambitious but they're out there selling drugs and they're out there financing uh, violence and conflict. Well, one of the points you make in the book, though, is that like Google, if you know, I'm Googling for my mm -hmm. controlled substance, that Google is supposed to have safeguards that prevent ads for these things from you know, popping up like that. I mean, and you were talking about how Paul was able to sort of figure out ways to get around he, that. He gamed Google. I mean, you get, this is really something. He gamed the Google system. So that, but when the U.S. government started to crack down in about 08, 09 on, on these online pharmaceutical uh, sales because people were dying. Uh, so a law was passed in 08, and uh, it got a little tougher, but he gamed Google, and he made it look like he was someplace else, and he wasn't doing it, and thing, he managed to deflect uh, these Google searches. He also gamed the Visa system and the FedEx system. Yeah, so how did he get the money? Did people just put a credit card number in? or he, he, People put in credit card numbers. He created Visa systems in some rather obscure uh, small countries. He was making his own, he, when he got caught, he was making his own Visa credit card system. Uh, he was going to be his own banker, but in the meantime, he was using <clears throat> some um, little island countries as, as, as Visa passers. American Express didn't take his money. Uh, didn't didn't deliver money to him for this, but some other systems are more diffuse than they did. Thanks, Elaine. Uh, just I'm curious, based on your incredible research and knowledge over these years, I mean, how vulnerable are we, um, not only as a nation, but just in general around the world in terms of cybersecurity, um, any kind of you know evil doing? Uh, what, what's your assessment of all that? We're very vulnerable in terms of cybersecurity, uh, and I think there's been a lot written about that. 
a certain election or two. The you know the Russians and others are tinkering with other uh, nations' elections as well. Uh, we've got to do a better job as far as drugs. Uh, I just heard from DEA. The good news is that prescriptions of opioids are down 21% last year. That's great. Doctors have really gotten the message you can't you give somebody a bottle of 80 oxys for uh, an ankle operation. Because that was happening and that was one of the problems. Uh, one statistic is about half the people who've started in, in the path of addiction have gotten the drugs from somebody they know, free. I mean, they found it in Aunt Tilly's medicine cabinet or Grandma's medicine cabinet, and um, addiction goes from there. We all know that. Uh, so the good news is doctors are being more careful, and the quotas for these uh, opioids that are produced legally are down. DEA has dropped them. The bad news is that the uh, Mexicans particularly are getting fentanyl, which isn't very dangerous synthetic opioid, and they're pressing it into pills, mixing it with Tylenol. There's a tiny, tiny, tiny bit will kill you, two milligrams, which I've looked at it. It's about the size of a, the beard on the Lincoln penny, maybe less, will kill an adult. A bunch of pill mills run by Mexicans have been busted lately, and also a guy in Canada. Uh, but that stuff is going to hit us big time pretty soon because there's demand. There's still addiction out there. People are going to start buying more pills on the street. They're counterfeit. They are counterfeit, but they have pill presses that make them look like the real thing. They're going to be very dangerous, and we're going to see more death if we are not careful. I think that we are very vulnerable because people tend to trust pills. They they see a white coat, and we, we're all conditioned to see nurses and doctors as good things. And so when these uh, websites that you can find, like Paul's, uh, come along and they have a good-looking guy in a white coat and a good-looking woman in a white coat, that looks nice and sanitary. It's not. These are all being made in the back room. So could you talk a little, at the end of the book, you say that a lot of the characters have names, false names. And I mean, how did you decide, you know, who you would actually name in this book versus who you would have to come up with, you know, false identities for? And Yeah, that's always a tough one for a journalist to not identify somebody. But in in the interest of telling the story, there are a couple of people who are undercover to this day uh, that I just used first names for. Uh, Jack is one uh, because he's still undercover. Another is Diego. He's undercover still, although I did talk to him today. I mean, I talk to these folks uh, a lot, and they're doing brave work, and I'm not going to endanger them. There's one a DEA agent who does a lot of undercover work, and I gave him a name, Taj. But um, other than that, pretty much everybody went under their own name. 
Elaine, um, two questions kind of interrelated. One is, um, uh, I never heard of this guy. Uh, you know, we've heard of El Chapo. We've heard, we heard a lot of the Colombian drug lords over the years and stuff. But uh, so how has this guy managed to stay under the radar and from at least the general public? And B, uh, did that make it more difficult to sell this book? I mean, did you have trouble uh, getting, uh, finding a publisher that was willing to invest all the time and money into doing all this work? It's true that you've never heard of Paul LaRue until now, but I'm hoping that people will be interested in his revolutionary business, business model and will want to know more about that and about how, how, you, how do you get to be invisible and be a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. That's a pretty good trick. Uh, El Chapo, he was in my first book. Um, he's, he's a relic of the past, and that may be exciting. It's like reading about... John Dillinger or uh, Lucky Luciano, and those are fun, but this is now. This is serious. Uh, I know of other drug traffickers and money launderers and arms traffickers who are doing a very good business. Nobody's ever heard of any of them. Uh, there are some people who are washing a billion dollars a year in money. Uh, for Hezbollah and for Al-Qaeda. Nobody's ever heard of them, but I think we need to know about And they're not as flashy. Uh, they're not married to beauty queens. Well, actually, some of them are. <laughs> you would be surprised at how many beauty queens and uh, stars and uh, certain, I, mean, I probably ought not to say who, uh, certain countries uh, actually wind up with these guys. And they do have yachts and they do hang out in some uh, pretty well-known resorts. That's my next book. <laughs> and so what, what could we do foreign policy-wise that would, I mean, at this point, I mean, the, the system you described, we're having to count on this very elite team within DEA to go after them. But is there something that we could be doing in our relationships with other governments in other countries that could could maybe take a, a more sort of holistic approach to rooting these guys out. That's right. Uh, well, to some extent, there, there has been some diplomacy that's been working to try to convince China to, to clamp down on chemicals for uh, synthetic drugs. China is, I think, the world's biggest producer of chemicals, and that includes fentanyl, and it includes precursors for meth, and for uh, the processing of cocaine and heroin, and for a lot of these counterfeit pills. Uh, the, Ch the Chinese police have uh, been helpful in Hong Kong and some other places. One problem that China has is uh, the laws are kind of backwards, and the chemists are ingenious in creating analogs, uh, which means chemicals that are one atom or one molecule off don't you've reached the limit of my chemistry, but analogs are a big problem. And if it's not illegal, then they say they can't get it. I th think they could probably be more aggressive. India is another place where a lot of these chemicals, these precursor chemicals and fentanyl, they're coming out of. Mexico, of course, could do a lot more to clamp down. This has nothing to do with a physical wall or barrier because all this stuff is driving straight through the ports 
We've all heard this. It's true. Paul LaRue, for instance, dealt with the Sinaloa cartel. He got them to smuggle 4 million tramadol pills, which is an opiate, in one day. Nobody carried that. That that just drove through because there were corrupt people on all sides. Uh, we've got to do a better job of working on corruption uh, generally. Hi, Elaine. I was, somebody asked about what happened with LaRue's empire, and it made me wonder what happened to his assets, all his properties, his bank accounts. Were they confiscated? Is there still money floating around? Thank you. Uh, what happened to LaRue's money? Well, some, there was $40 million in gold bars confiscated by the police in Hong Kong. They went into his safe house, and they also got a big pile of uh, ammonium nitrate, uh, which probably was going to end up as an explosive. Um, but his other bank accounts, I'm told that only he knows what's all is in his head. Uh, it's all in his head somewhere. He coughed up some yachts and some money, but I think everybody who knows him or who has dealt with him believes that he has stashed away money all over the country, all over the world, and that if he gets out, he'll, or even if he's in the prison population, he might be able to use it to uh, hurt people. And does, does he have any family, any relatives anywhere? Any? <laughs> Paul LaRue admits to having 11 children by seven women. He has boasted that he's the biggest baby daddy in the lockup. Uh, that's one of his uh, things that he does. He probably has more. Uh, when he was picked up, he was living, if you want to call it that, in Rio, uh, where he had gotten at least one woman pregnant, maybe others, because to, uh, Brazil has laws uh, to protect the fathers of anchor babies. Um, he didn't really remember all of his kids, and he made fun of them, and he made fun of the women. He has a regular girlfriend if, uh, who's in Manila, but there are women scattered all over the place. He's not very loyal to them either. And does, does the government have any interest in them and what they might know, or did they know much? Uh, these women have not been pursued. I don't think that the government is engaged in a massive effort to find his assets. They were happy to have him. They were very happy to have him flip and find the enforcers, who are stone killers, I believe, and get those people taken in, off in a, in a legal way. They were all locked up. Most of them uh, pleaded guilty, but three of them were, were convicted. And that was, that was the emphasis, because they could kill quite easily. So when the government is really and truly trying to outwit a genius, I mean, what kind of resources did they have of sort of you know, figuring out exactly how all these pieces were, were fitting together. The psychological drama is what really fascinated me. That's exactly the question, is the two agents who went after LaRue, the two case agents are Tom Sendrick and Eric Stouch. They uh, have wonderful instincts, but they're, they're, they're not extraordinary people. Uh, they're... Oh, an earring. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, they're not um, advanced degrees, 
cyber geniuses, anything like that. They're just guys who've spent a lot of time on the street. They, they, they were street cops together here, and they just knew a lot of crooks. It was, so it's the two of them, plus Jack, the informant who was inside, who's a pretty smart guy. Uh, and the three of them tried to figure out what LaRue would go for that would get him out of Rio, out of his safe house, actually it was safe condo in Rio, and get him to come to Monrovia. And they thought, of, they had Jack offer him blood diamonds. Nah, I've done that. Uh, uh, what about this or that? Nah, I've done that. Nah, I've done this. And finally, what they figured out that he wanted, he wanted novelty. It wasn't just about money. He wanted something, he, he was curious. He loved projects. He wanted something he'd never done before. He, they, if there was some gimmick, um, he, that somebody knew about that he didn't. He wanted to know about it. Uh, they told him a false story uh, that the Colombian cartels had figured out how to ship a form of cocaine that you, was not detectable. And he lit up on that. He thought that was kind of fun because he hadn't thought of it yet. It was a, a kind of a precursor, one step short of the fine white powder that you know you all obviously don't know that, but, but you know, it's white cocaine. It was a, a, something else. And so that interested him. And what really interested him was uh, making a deal with the Colombians because he tried and tried to get cocaine not going to Colombia. He went to Ecuador. He went to Peru. He bought uh, cocaine, seized cocaine from the cops in uh, Manila, but it ended up being tainted with salt water. So it, he was having a hard time. He's, he, he wanted the cocaine because uh, it sells for a great price in Southeast Asia. And he finally said, well, if I can make a deal with a real Colombian cartel, I can trade them this really fine North Korean meth, which is really 99.7% pure. It's industrial uh, produced, very, very crystalline and very pure. I can trade it off and then we can make this um, conglomerate. That's what tempted him, but it took him a while to figure that out. Once so, they did, they had him. So I guess we should look to see if North Korean meth is on the agenda items for the next summit. Or? Yeah, no, it's funny. Nobody has mentioned that, but it's that's where how they make money. There's a big meth problem in Southeast Asia, and a big meth problem in Japan. People in that part of the world um, will spend a lot of money for stimulants. Uh, they work very hard and they want to stay up and this is what does it. And so the, this has been true for some years. Uh, the U.S. has known about the meth trade in North Korea, but we don't know everything about who gets the money and how they transact the money and the relationship with the Chinese triads. And what about those Chinese triads? Could China maybe do something to curtail them? Uh, that's something that might the diplomats might want to work on. So a two-part question. In your research, uh, did you find out how many Americans are addicted? Uh, and secondly, how do you feel that the legalization of marijuana as a gateway drug to bringing in more drugs? Um, all right. How many Americans are addicted? I was just looking up numbers because uh, I thought that might come up. Um, Six million Americans 
every month, use co- well, use some uh, drug every month, I believe. Uh, well, actually, prescription drugs mostly. Prescri- the, the, the addiction to prescri- prescription opioids and other pres- is about double what it is for cocaine, heroin, meth, and the other hard illegal drugs. Um, marijuana, people, about 26 million people use it every month. Uh, I don't think about marijuana very much except as, as, a, as a gateway drug. You can argue that all day long, and I'm not going to sit here and argue it. Uh, but it, it has made a lot of money for the Mexican cartels, which have uh, used that money to rip apart the legal system in Mexico. Uh, so I think it's a bad thing. Um, legalization uh, is, a, is an interesting debate, but I'm very concerned about uh, our casual use of, of opioid pills and painkillers. There's a, this debate is raging right now. Uh, Kids in high school sports, junior high sports, are sometimes given painkillers if they break their leg. They have to uh, get it fixed. Uh, and that can lead to uh, an interest in these drugs. The interest is not addiction, but it can lead to that. And I think that we have to be very, very careful about what's going on in our medicine cabinets and what's going on in the doctor's office. And we have to watch our kids. Thank you. Well, I think we are near the end of our time. Oh, wait, we have time for, oh, well, privileged motion from Elaine's husband. Uh, can you, the, the, this is obviously what, you, you know, it's an international problem. Um, rogue nations, uh, their connection to uh, drug, drug trafficking, arms trafficking, and so on. To what extent is the, does the DEA cooperate with other major U.S. law enforcement agencies, such as the FBI or CIA? Uh, okay. Well, anybody who's been around our U.S. government and the agencies know that they fight like strange cats at times. Uh, what's interesting to me about DEA is that it has had people, it and its predecessor agencies, have had people abroad since the 50s. The U.S. government has been concerned about drugs for a very long time. And through the various iterations up to DEA, which was born in about 72, DEA agents have been around the world. They're in 70 countries now, and they've cultivated a lot of local policemen. And they brought a lot of policemen, local and federal in those countries, to the U.S. government and trained them at Quantico. Uh, the DEA Academy in Quantico. The FBI does something similar, but DEA has a lot more people abroad. So even though DEA only has about 4,000 agents right now, so it's tiny, it's just not even an asterisk in the federal budget, it has a lot of um, friends, relationships, which uh, its agents, that's their whole job, is to cultivate cops, good cops. No matter where you go, no matter how bad the country is, they, there's often a few good cops. They're in Burma, they're in uh, all kinds of countries that, uh, well, you don't think about. And the reason is, is because all cops hate 
drugs, uh, the clean ones, hate drugs. It's a commonality. They also don't like politicians, and that sometimes works in uh, everybody's favor. Uh, and they're willing to make drug arrests. They're often not making, not willing to make uh, white-collar crime arrests and things like that. But you show them a, a doper, and they're willing to go after them, usually. So, well, as I said, we, we are at the end of our time. Uh, your, your partner here, though, Michael Mann, is a filmmaker. What do we see next? Yes. Um, when I was doing the research on this book, I uh, told my friend Michael Mann about what I was doing. And he said, gee, uh, I'm really interested in that guy. I was looking for somebody who would, the new style of drug kingpin, somebody who's doing it the Silicon Valley way. Uh, I'd, I'd really like to work with you on that. And I said, well, of course. Uh, gee, yeah, it'd be uh, great because Michael is, uh, he's brilliant. Uh, he's an artist. He sees things I don't see. He can do things in dimension, three dimensions, four dimensions. I can't do it. And uh, so as I wrote, I would give him chapters and he would say, almost there. This is really good. You got a hole there. He never would. He's not a guy who would ever want me to fictionalize anything, but he would sometimes point out when I didn't have enough there. So I would have to go back and pester somebody to get more information, and that's a good thing because wow. I've got a lot of information. Right. Well, anyway, thank you so much for joining us tonight, and thank you, Elaine, for writing this great book. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.